Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. We're covering a very interesting case tonight, and it's it's sort of a, a really tragic case, the loss of life of just a, a neurosurgeon. Uh, up on the screen, you could, you could see the, the flyer there. Dr. Devin Hoover, seven months ago, in this palatial estate that you see up on the screen here, 13,000 square foot mansion uh, in the state of Michigan, Detroit, Michigan. He lived there alone, the doctor and neurosurgeon, pretty much loved by everyone. Yet on April 23rd, 2023, he wound up shot twice in the back of the head in his own home, found naked except for wearing one sock, and somehow transported from where the crime occurred in the house up into the attic where his body was found, covered by a comforter and a sheet. When this first occurred, the police promised there would be a quick arrest. However, here we are seven months later, and no one is in custody. So, folks, hang on. We're about to enter the police off the cuff zone. Join us for police off the cuff. There has to be some common sense. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Joining me tonight to help dissect and understand this case is retired NYPD sergeant and professor of Albertus Magnuson, Connecticut, Michael Geary. Mike, welcome to the show. Billy, thank you for having me on. Good evening, everyone. And also joining us tonight is retired NYPD detective and always a, uh, a great guest co-host straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you, Billy. Thank you for having me. You know, with this case, I just want to read an update. Uh, authorities expect to make a major announcement soon in connection with the April killing of a well-known Detroit neurosurgeon. The Detroit police chief said recently uh, during a police commissioner's meeting, few details have been shared in the fatal shooting of Dr. Devin Hoover, who was found wrapped in a sheet in a crawl space of his Boston Edson District home. Officials says the 53-year-old Hoover was shot several times in the head in his house and was carried to the attic crawl space after the shooting where he was later found. Since Hoover's death on April 23rd, there have been few leads and no arrests as police continue to investigate, but that could soon change. Detroit Police Chief James White said Thursday, November 2nd, that the investigation is moving forward and that investigators expect to have an announcement soon. Hopefully 
by the end of the year. But we know right now it's December 5th and there has been no such announcement. We're confident that we should be able to bring some closure to this family very, very soon. But again, no arrest at this point. Phil, we discussed it uh, prior to coming on the air tonight that uh, people get very, very itchy when there's no arrest in a homicide case. And we know that have done this type of work, it's not unusual for six or seven months or even a year to go by with no arrest because you may have someone in mind. There may be what the news always refers to as a person of interest. However, the evidence may not be there in order for the police to get the go-ahead from the district attorney to make the arrest. Phil? Yeah, Billy. Uh, listen, sometimes on these cases, you go to the scene and the perp is still on the scene and it's in handcuffs and it's solved right away. But there are many times when uh, the investigation starts, you might be able to name a person of interest or a suspect. And now you have to build that case. And like you said, Billy, you have to work along with the prosecutor's office in our case in New York, the district attorney's office. And they're involved in the case right from the onset. They interview witnesses on their own after you interview them. They put them on videotape sometimes or they'll take a recorded statement. And now you confer with them and they say, you know what, why don't we go in this direction? Why don't we go in that direction? And as we talked about earlier, Bill, a lot of the evidence that's recovered, let's say it's cell phone evidence, let's say it's subpoenas on computers, different things of that nature. Those things don't happen overnight. They take uh, a very long time. A lot of times with law enforcement, there could be dozens and dozens of subpoenas that are submitted to, let's say, Verizon or T-Mobile or one of the cell phone carriers. And, you know, there is only maybe one or two people that handle that in that area. A lot of times it's only one person. So again, unless it's uh, something of, you know, a super high profile nature, uh, you go in line and a lot of times these things do take time. So that could be part of the reason for the delay. But I think it was more or less what you said early on, Billy. Uh, the prosecutor's office is working along with the police and they're going to have to prosecute this case. And they're not going to take a person's rights away and put them in jail for a very long time unless they have sufficient evidence. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, Billy, you know, people like Phil said, it takes a while. We know that uh, just getting, um, you know, blood evidence information from like what was in a bloodstream, like narcotics or alcohol in the decedent's bloodstream, that might take six weeks to get the toxicology reports. Uh, I know that sometimes you're dealing with cell phone information. It may take several months after you've submitted the information to get it. And then when you get it, you then have to analyze it. And that might take quite a while because you're going to have to need somebody with some expertise to actually do it. All these things take a long time and um, you've got to work with these outside agencies like telephone companies and, and things like that. It's going to take a while. So I'm, I'm hoping that people um, don't get, uh, don't think that just because there hasn't been arrest that the police don't have someone, they are watching somebody, they're getting their information and it's going to take a while. And when they do, the, again, they want it wrapped up. The dis prosecutors want it wrapped up. And they want to be able to present it in court and make sure they get a conviction. So they're going to have the uh, the detectives like you and Phil jump through so many hoops. And that's that's going to take a while. I want to play this by News Nation here. For months since the brutal slaying of Detroit neurosurgeon Devin Hoover. He was found naked and wrapped in sheets in the attic crawl space of his mansion in April. He suffered multiple gunshot wounds to his head and news of his brutal murder left the community 
understandably stunned and really starved for answers. No one seeming to understand why a person would want to kill a man who was so beloved. But now police say they think they have their guy. But there's still a lot of work ahead before they will go public with any names or any charges. So let's bring in Joseph Tolley, criminal defense attorney, to join us live and kind of help break this down. First of all, thank you for being here. What does this latest update from police tell you? Because it's kind of an update. I really think it's the best way to say it. I mean, they're saying that they're confident they have a suspect, but yet they aren't saying you know who the person is and they're not really saying much more. Sure, yes. I, I think this uh, story is sort of notable for um, what they didn't say versus what they did say. Um, the, I think it's fair to say that the police are keeping their cars very, very close to their vest here. Um, as you noted, they say that um, they, they're confident that they have a suspect in this case, and that's all. But they also say that they have a lot of work to do, and um, they're working with the DA's office, the prosecution, um, to make sure that they have the best case possible before they go forward and file charges in court. All right, so, so Joseph, should the public be concerned here? Because unless this person happens to be... You know, I, I just want to, uh, to, to stop right there. Obviously, the community is concerned. Is there a mad killer out there? Um, seven months have gone by. This beloved neurosurgeon there has been no arrest. However, Phil, there's some indicators in how this crime was committed that lead the... Um, experienced homicide investigator to have several red flags. One, of course, we would all look at there's no forced entry into the into the home. This 13,000 square foot home, there's no forced entry. The fact that the doctor was found naked uh, with one sock on, that says something to the investigator also. It, it, it screams of some type of relationship. The other thing, where was he killed in comparison to where his body was found? His body was obviously moved. He was shot in quick succession to the back of the head. One of the bullets hit him on the side of the head. And as Joseph Scott Morgan on Court TV explained, the coup de grace came shortly after that very quick succession to the back of the head. So there is no doubt whoever did this. And on court TV, they kept referring to they, to they. And I think the only reason they could come up with the they is the fact that his body had to have been moved and it would be very difficult for one person to move this body. Your thoughts, Phil? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, Billy, because uh, just based on the last thing you said, um, moving a body into a crawl space, let's say an attic. I have an attic in my house. The stairs are very narrow. They're not uh, very easily accessible. And now you have to take the dead weight of a human body and bring it up into that uh, into that area. It doesn't even sound like a stand-up attic. It sounds like a crawl space is what they described it as. And so some of the things, the way the body was found with the bed sheet on it, uh, a comforter and a, and a piece of rug, it said, uh, covering it, those are indicative of signs that uh, the perpetrator was known to the victim and didn't want to look at the messy crime scene that they created. That's one of the things that uh, was a red flag to me. And 
you know, perhaps uh, from based on what they're saying with regard to the autopsy, I said it before we went on the air. I believe it sounds like that he may have been shot in the bedroom, either uh, woken up asleep or maybe in an intimate position. Uh, maybe something went on in that bedroom area and then the body was taken up into the uh, the attic crawl space. That's what it sounds like to me. Mike, I want to address this to you. One of the reasons, uh, a very good reason that the district attorney may have not approved an arrest yet, because they're talking about they have someone in mind. They almost had someone in custody very early in this case. Right. If someone has permission and authority to be in your home, say on a day-to-day -day basis, say a handyman, right? say a, a friend, then doesn't it make sense that their DNA, their fingerprints mm -hmm. will be all over your house? So if a crime is committed, then what does it mean if the DNA is there or the fingerprints? It doesn't help you, does it? No, it doesn't, uh, especially depending also on the rooms that the uh, you find that DNA in or those fingerprints in. Uh, you'd expect a handyman's uh, uh, fingerprints and DNA wouldn't probably be in your bedroom. However, a house like this probably had a lot of renovation. So it's possible you may have had a fingerprint or something from a carpenter up in the bedrooms, maybe working on the windows, the roofs, you know, things like that. So it makes it difficult because you can't really pin down, you know, when that fingerprint was made or when that DNA was left. And uh, so then you got to go to something else, um, you know, relationships. Was there any text messaging, things like that? Was there any threats made? Then you also have to look at the uh, firearm. It doesn't seem that the doctor possessed the firearm. So you're thinking that the firearm was brought in. And so, you know, that changes the thing because then it looks more like not a lover's quarrel, like a, and sudden, a sudden burst of anger, but perhaps a cold calculating person. Who would the doctor let into the home? Somebody he knew already. And again, that could be uh, numerous friends that he's had over. It could have been because we don't know the exact time uh, of the shooting. So it could have been uh, someone who's done repairs or something like that, that knows absolutely the layout of that house. So you need a lot of circumstantial evidence. And the district attorneys, remember, as you and Phil uh, are going to make an arrest based on probable cause, you turn, you, you know, you're the district attorney, they're prosecuting and they're looking to see not probable cause. They're looking to see proof beyond reasonable doubt, which is their burden when it comes to trial. So it's a very difficult case, really. It's not it's not a it's not as easy as maybe some people think that, oh, you know, it's something you see on. Uh, TV, like uh, Law and Order or something like that. No, let's hear from the Detroit police here. Preliminarily, our investigation reveals uh, that this is uh, an incident uh, where the two parties knew each other. Um, we have no reason to believe that the community is in any uh, or at any risk. Uh, this was not a random act. Uh, again, uh, that's preliminary, uh, but we are still actively working the investigation, but we're confident that no other uh, residents are at risk. They believe the two knew each other. Dr. Devon Hoover murdered inside his 13,000-square-foot mansion in the Detroit area. So who was it? He lived alone. He lived alone in that house, but had lots and lots of friends. We know that. Worked with lots of people. Uh, what isn't well known is uh, who was there. Well, obviously, 
that's one of the things we're going to want to know. But if he had so many friends and he was so beloved, perhaps he was a trusting soul and let people come in and out of his house without any questions asked. And rug. So not in the middle of the living room, not in his bedroom, was put into the crawl space. His clothing consisted of a black sock on the right foot. Fingernail clippings and samples for a rape kit were obtained. All right, you know something? I got to stop there. It mm -hmm. is not routine police procedure to do a rape kit on every homicide. Phil, I mean, obviously, because he's found the way he was found naked with one sock on, that leads people to believe perhaps there's some relationship with someone, and that could be the person that did this, and potentially could this have been a sex crime? Uh, Billy, we talked about it earlier. Uh, when the medical examiner uh, does an examination of the body, uh, I have to get a little technical here, but perhaps there is some trauma to the genital area or the rectum, and I believe that is probably what prompted them to do the rape kit. Uh, like you said, it's not routine in all homicides. However, uh, in this one, they did it. There had to be a reason why they did it. Something led them to believe that there was something afoul and possibly could be uh, related to a rape. So they did the rape kit to err on the side of caution. Perhaps there is some type of DNA evidence that could be recovered from that rape kit. You know, I, I also want to say that um, people in the chat, did he fight, fight back? You can't really fight back when someone shoots you in quick succession Right. Two rounds to the back of your head. There's no fighting back. Uh, death would come almost immediately, uh, if not immediately, especially where these gunshot wounds were placed. But there I could be some struggle, Billy, before the gunshots are fired, but you're 100% right. The minute that those shots are fired, that person is unconscious, and then shortly thereafter, they, uh, they pass. Look, one of the things that we, of course, want to know, and the police aren't telling anyone, is... Where in the house was the crime scene? And that is very important because he was removed, obviously, from the crime scene up into this crawl space. It also means something, Phil, that there was a sheet and a comforter covering his face. Um, that tells us something also, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I had a homicide one time where uh, the victim had the throat slashed and then numerous stab wounds. When we got to the scene, the scene had been staged and the victim had a uh, an article of clothing placed around the gaping hole in the throat. It turned out that it was a very close relative that had committed the homicide. And again, these are uh, the type of things that we study. And uh, psychologists will tell you that, and, and people that study uh, criminology will tell you that this is indicative that they didn't want to look at this horrible gaping wound. So they covered it while they staged the crime scene. Again, I think that that is one of the things that will lead investigators to think that the perpetrators are known to the victim. Perpetrator or perpetrators. Mike, one of my uh, problems here, and, and it, it, it comes up in every high-profile homicide case, is that the police always get called on the carpet about releasing information. And for the mo most really competent police departments, try not to release information. And the public doesn't have a right to know these things, nor does the press. There is no right for you to know it, especially if it damages the case. 
your thoughts, Mike. Yeah, Billy, there's no way that a homicide detective in a police department should be uh, releasing like an open file, like a like a FOIL request to open up the homicide files while they're investigating the case. That wouldn't make ever make any sense because the person or persons of interest, if they ever had that information, they could abscond. You would never, ever do that. And you uh, you've done this and Phil's done this many, probably many times. You will hold back certain information about the manner of the of the homicide maybe the location you know certain things that the public doesn't need to know to you know for the uh, the press can have some information to put it out there that indeed there was a homicide but all those little particulars you want to keep so that in case you are uh, you get someone to, that comes forward and does a confession you could separate the wheat from the chaff say well this person is maybe they're looking for attention and they're not really the killer because they don't know, you know, particular sets of facts that only we know and the medical examiner knows. And so therefore, you know, if that's a genuine confession or not, um, the public would be amazed at how many people will actually try to get some sort of notoriety for themselves for whatever reason, strange reason. And they'll, they'll try to interject themselves, even if they're not confessing, They'll interject themselves to say that they know certain things when, in fact, they don't. So you don't want to tempt those people by putting out any bit of information that is not absolutely essential for the public to know. Uh, it is frustrating for the public, but it's done in order to make the uh, case go smoother and to make sure that when you start closing in on somebody that they don't know it. You know, Mike, in the same vein, even the family members don't have an absolute right. And the investigators can't tell everything to the family members because sometimes the family members can can be the worst. Well, look, we looked at the Koberger case. Right. And when the families were told too much, all of a sudden that information got all over the so all over media. It was all out there. And the police said, you know something? We can't tell them anything anymore because it can really, really hurt the case. So let me go back to um, live court TV. And retained. Let's bring in our investigators joining us tonight, folks, in Los Angeles, California, retired FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon in Jacksonville, Alabama, forensic death investigator, professor of forensics at Jacksonville State University and host of the Body Bags podcast, which did do an episode on this. Uh, Joseph Scott Morgan is with us. And in Michigan City, Indiana, private investigator, founder of Victims News Online, Erica Morse is with us. Great to see everyone. Okay, Bobby Chacon, I'll begin with you. Welfare check is how this really, really began, right? Um, right. You go inside this house, he's found in a crawl space. Um, what does that tell you, if anything, about what may have happened or who, uh, what type of person we may be looking for here? Well, it tells me a couple of things. It tells me, obviously, they wanted the body not to be found. They wanted to hide it as long as they could. Um, it also tells me they may have some familiarity with the house. A house that big, um, the crawl spaces are usually way up, obviously, their access to the, the upper floors. Um, so, uh, depending on where the murder happened, it tells me the person could have been uh, and might likely have been familiar with the house and where that crawl space was. Obviously, they had to have known it was there to put the body there. So, it, that's that's what you start looking at. You start piecing up. Is this someone that's been in the house before? Did they know where this crawl space was? They had to know it was there. Did they stumble across it or did they know it was there and then bring him there? 
Um, so, so preliminarily, you start putting those kind of pieces together. Joseph Scott Morgan, um, looking at the scene here and, and what, what happened, they don't believe necessarily that anything was taken. Right. You've got this house and you look at, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, they're saying basically some of the things we're saying that the house is an amazing. It looks like a museum. Oh, really I can't even imagine a house that's 13,000 square feet. It's just uh, incredible. But when you think of a house that's 13,000 square feet and one person lives in it, what does that scream to you? That he has to have hired help, doesn't he? Right. He has to have perhaps a maid or a butler or maintenance workers on the scene because he's a busy neurosurgeon. He's not going to take so bringing all these people into your life raises your risk, believe it or not, of becoming a victim of a homicide. Phil, absolutely, Billy. And uh, the reports that I read were that he would hold uh, events at his home. He would offer his home up for charity events or uh, things from the community. And he had a lot of people. He would invite people in and out of that house. So uh, one of the things I think has to be considered, perhaps someone that was invited into that house, became friendly, got to know the lay of the house. And perhaps that is the perpetrator in this crime. And um, I, I think that the, the, the victimology that we always talk about, that's going to be key in this case because his cell phone is going to give us a lot of information, who he was texting, talking to, conversations, his email, same thing, his uh, social media accounts, if he had any. Um, all of those things would uh, definitely uh, be worthwhile looking into. And his family and friends, uh, who was he closest with? Those are the people you're going to want to interview. Who did he possibly have a problem with? Was he engaged in a uh, relationship with anyone? And perhaps it was Stormy. All of those things are very, very important to try and narrow down who the perpetrator is. And it sounds like they've already done that. You know, even if they, and Mike, I'll get to you in one yeah. second. Even if they, they have a person of interest, Many times you can have a person of interest, but that doesn't mean you have the evidence against that person. Exactly. And there's things like, of course, besides the DNA checks, the forensic evidence checks, the ballistics checks, the um, uh, fingerprints. There's also things called financials. What if this per they identify this person? Could the answer be in <laughs> financials? Could he have been stealing money from the doctor's account? Do Did this person have a romantic relationship with with the doctor. All of those things have to be found out, and they don't just scream at you. You have to talk, and Phil, you brought up the term victimology. Yes, the study of the victim. We got to do a deep dive into the background of, of, of Dr. Hoover, you know, and, and that's how we're going to get the answer. But even with doing this deep dive, and of course, family members, the community are all frustrated that seven months have gone by. And one of the things the police should never do is promise anything at any point. Don't ever promise that you're going to have this case solved. Don't ever promise that you're going to make an arrest because you look foolish when there isn't. Mike. Yeah, Bill, the police chief made a uh, guarantee almost saying that they're, uh, they've got a suspect uh, an interest of interest and they're going to make an arrest before the first snow. And they made that about a month ago. And now you're talking about Detroit in, in the winter time, you know, they're, they're getting the hopes up of the public uh, a little too much. I know they want to be out there and let people know, look, 
you know, this isn't a cold case. We are actively investigating it. Be, be aware that we really kind of know what we're doing here. We're really narrowing it down. This is going to happen. But um, I think they tried a little too hard when it comes to reassuring the public. And that was a mistake because uh, people are now going to look at it and say, okay, it's December. Maybe nothing happens till January. And maybe, like you say, if you, you got the person of interest, but for some reason you can't nail down a few loose ends and the prosecutor may not want you to make the arrest. Now you look foolish, you look incompetent, and the public may not realize that you you know you just overpromise, but you do have information. You just don't have enough, and that's never a good thing. No, you know the case that I, uh, Carmen Quinones and Ruben Frederick, I was on New York Homicide on that case, and the two main players in that case were arrested in the first seven days after the occurrence. However, the person who hired them wasn't arrested for four years. And the police department was freaking out. Like, why hasn't she been arrested? As if they, you know, it was like, <laughs> let me scream louder and that's going to make it happen, you know? And the district attorney kept telling them, I can't, he goes, we can't arrest her right now, but she'll get off. Is that what you want? Or do you want me to have enough evidence that we arrest her and she goes to prison for the rest of her life? Well, the police department wasn't really happy with that answer. And they called this district attorney every damn week and asked him, and he gave them the same answer. So four years went by, four winters, the snow, the summer, the spring, you know, it went by. And finally, he called me one day, and they sent the district attorney squad. He says, all right, you can go get her right now. <laughs> that, that was a good all right, great. And, and And we had an arrest warrant. She couldn't be interviewed. We were just going to take her in and, and make a long story short. She got life without parole. So the district attorney kept true to his word. He had a solid case against her, which incidentally did include financials, which showed, which were very powerful evidence in this in the case in that case. Billy, I just want to speak about one of the things that could be a delay too. I think Mike touched on it earlier. Uh, you know, uh, I was involved in something recently where a person had died. It wasn't a criminal case or anything, but it took five and a half months for the toxicology results to come back. Now that's just toxicology, uh, mm -hmm. DNA, financials, telephone records, subpoenas to let's say a, uh, a service provider for internet. All of those things are going to take a long time. And then, uh, you know, uh, you don't want to divulge too much information because if you do get the opportunity to question that person, you don't want them to know what you know and what you don't know. You want to keep them guessing. And then once they're in the room and you start hitting them with things, we know about this. Well, what about that? And then the wheels start, start to spin. And that person says, wow, they know more than I think they know. And that's when they start locking themselves into lies. And hopefully you get a confession at that point. I don't know if that's going to happen in this case. You know, probably, uh, you know, the, the perpetrator or the person of interest could lawyer up. But that's the uh, the tack that we like to take. We don't want too much information out there. We don't want anybody knowing what uh, uh, we know, and we don't want anyone knowing too much of the information of the actual crime scene because that's stuff that we're going to use later on down the line. Absolutely. And you know something? Look, the doctor being the friendly person he was in this community, maybe he was very trusting. And maybe it, it, it seems like to me, based on how this crime was committed, that he knew, he knew the person that did this. And it, it sounds almost like a, uh, a romantic relationship that went badly. Mike. Yeah, Billy, I agree. Um, you know, the, I, I think that 
from from like from what I know, obviously we don't know a, a whole lot, but the uh, killer probably brought the firearm to the house. It probably wasn't owned by the doctor. It probably you know wasn't some sort of a quick-tempered argument that just suddenly went south and and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, probably the person went there for whatever reason, whatever motive they have uh, to finish off a relationship or to get back at the doctor for leaving a relationship or whatever it happened to be. But someone, I think, brought that gun into that house with the, with the idea that they were going to do the doctor that night. And um, sadly, it, that's, that's a premeditated murder. And, um, you know, I think that's where the police are looking to see. And I, I always think when you ever see a, a someone who's uh, passed away in their home, shot to death in their home, murdered in their home, you're looking at present husband or wife, former husband and wife, present boyfriend and girlfriend, former boyfriend and girlfriend, something like this, maybe the doctor, even a business associate, you know, that sort of thing. So um, there's with him being a very gregarious person, a very generous person with the use of his home to many people, um, the list of suspects are, are really, is really wide to begin with, but hopefully they can narrow it down rather quickly. And I'm sure right now they got it narrowed down to just like one or possibly two people. Absolutely. And I, I think that again, uh, they should keep that close to the vest yes. because it's not going to help, uh, the case putting out there, maybe it takes a little heat off of them. Let me play a little bit more of this from uh, the body TV. in these layers. I think that we have a sheet. I, I had heard a comforter as well and a carpet. So you've got this layering that's going on as well. Um, it just smacks of intimacy to me. Erica Morris, I want you to take a listen to the uh, chief of police, James White. tell you what led to the welfare check uh, a member of the family called uh, because he did not show up at an event that he was expected to show up at uh, when the officers arrived on the scene uh, they were they were quickly uh, concerned about uh, some of the the things that they saw uh, and as a result uh, they went into the home and the rest is where we, we, we find ourselves today Erica Morris the things that they saw right they're doing a, a welfare check which are relatively common but they see things that lead them at some point eventually to the attic, to this crawl space. But the things that they saw, crucial in this case. Crucial, then. Um, what, I, what I would expect is that there was some type of an indication of a struggle. Caitlin mentioned it earlier. This home was meticulous. And so for things to be out of place certainly would have caught their attention. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who's actually in Detroit. He's been working the story on the ground ever since it happened. Talked with her a little bit today. And she really feels that, that the indicator coming from local law enforcement, it's very similar to that of what we saw in Moscow. Um, Idaho was that everybody's kind of assuming that law enforcement isn't doing a whole bunch here. Oh, they really are. They're working a lot behind the scenes. They're remaining tight-lipped. Well, there was there was a problem. There is a problem. There's people calling to bring the FBI in again, you know, and it's just, it, it's really disheartening uh, to the local police agency. In this case, the Detroit police, which, uh, let's face it, they have a hell of a lot of experience with homicides in that city, <laughs> right? So 
to think that they're good, like people are questioning whether they're competent. No, they are competent enough. It's not going at the speed that you want it to go. And usually the people that uh, raise those flags are, of course, the, the press. They're the first ones to pour that gasoline on the fire. Oh, it's been seven months. Let's bring the FBI in. Well, guess what? We're not bringing the FBI in. This doesn't call for the FBI, this case. All you have to do is look at the posture of the police chief in this case. He said it's not random. He believes it could be possibly domestic or romantic. So I don't think that, uh, you know, they're not turning around and saying, well, you know, we, have, we don't have any witnesses. We don't have any leads. We're putting up a tip line. It's nothing like that. They're zeroing in. They're just doing their due diligence. They're going to put everything together and they're going to have to probably do a lot of interviews and look at specific pieces of evidence. And they're going to confer with the district attorney or the prosecutor in the area. And I am sure that they're going to come to a conclusion on this case and, and make an arrest sometime soon. Uh, it looks like this first snow already fell. So I think the chief kind of put himself in the trick bag with that one that he's going to regret saying that. But again, these things do take time and it'll, uh, it'll come to fruition. It's just something that, you know, uh, you have to go into court. You have to be able to stand up to a judge, uh, to a jury, you know, you have to uh, stand up to a, a defense attorney. And when you get questioned on things, you got to have the answers. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. If you want to contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. And uh, we appreciate all our fans, our subscribers, and our friends that have supported this show over the years. You know, to talk about, again, uh, almost every case that we cover, you have Ashley Banfield talking about uh, how, is this a cold case, you know? And she stays true to form on this one. Me now, Carol Goat. She's Devon Hoover's best friend, and this is her first national interview. Carol, thank you for being on with me tonight. And I'm so sorry about the loss of your friend. This has been just a, a mystifying, um, you know, story to, to cover. And I'm sure it's been just excruciating to live through. What do you make of the promises that the, that the chief made and hasn't fallen, fallen, followed through on? Well, really, it just, it just went to my heart and just pained my heart. I, we were counting on this, truly counting on, and believed what he said. You know, I've called, uh, you know, family members, we've been, you know, pestering them, and it was always the same thing. Oh, we're tying up all the details by the time the snow flies. And then to hear him say that it was just an artful expression was just extraordinarily painful. It, it's just like, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. If you can't believe the police, who, who can you believe? So they had uh, the Detroit Board of Police Commissioners had a meeting yesterday. You were there. You actually were able to speak. Were they listening? And did you have a chance to to let them know how you felt about maybe um, bringing in the FBI about now? Yes, I I, I asked that um, they please do something now. I realized that because of the way the investigation went there are going to be problems with the prosecutor's office and what the prosecutor wants. 
And so I, I really feel that when you have these two entities that, you know, have different views of the thing, that it's time for an outside party, the FBI, to come in and deal with this. I mean, it's, you know, as far as I know, gone nowhere. I mean, there's been no communication, you know, from the police, nothing. The families had, I've had nothing, they've had nothing either. So it's Carol, just I didn't very realize this until, until we reached out and talked to you, that you were actually at Devon's house um, the day after his murder, and you saw some very strange signs uh, for a place where such a violent crime had taken place. Can you describe what you saw? Uh, well, I wasn't, I knew, I learned, you know, Monday morning that Devon was dead at, at 9 o'clock. I went over to the house at 10 because I wanted to meet his sisters who all lived out of town and not have them come to a strange, you know, place with this kind of... Well, basically what what Banfield is trying to get it to say that uh, the police aren't doing their job. Why is this taking so long? The same theme that they used on the on the Koberger case, which turned out to be nonsensical. Uh, but in this case, there could be, as we discussed earlier, there could be a problem that they don't have enough evidence to pull the trigger on the arrest. And that is up to the district attorney, not the Detroit detectives, not the Detroit police department, not the FBI. It's up to the district attorney. If the district attorney feels there's not enough evidence to go forth, then they have to wait till they develop enough evidence to make the arrest. Mike. Yeah, Bill, I, I, it's really sad because this lady is obviously uh, in mourning and she mentions that it seems like, you know, nothing's happened in the case, almost as if the police have not uncovered a single clue at all. And they're still at the starting gate and nothing has gone on. And, and that's probably further, furthest from the truth that you can ever possibly be. And it's sad that they just, you know, they don't understand. And Banfield doesn't do it any better by saying, isn't it time the FBI has been brought in? Uh, when would, you know, Detective Banfield think that uh, she should bring in the FBI? Um, it, it doesn't help at all. This does not help in any way, shape or form. And it makes people feel worse because she's actually justifying these feelings that she has about the police. We know she's in mourning and we know she means well, but uh, to just spread this, these ideas that there are, uh, the police aren't doing anything does not help whatsoever. It destroys the confidence in the police and the police are tied. As you say, you and Phil say, they can't publicly say uh, we would make an arrest because we have the guy and we have the guy in our sights, but we're just not allowed to. No, they're not going to say that. And unfortunately, people and uh, reporters and journalists and maybe family members, we see this in Brian Koberger case, they get very vocal when they don't see things going the way they want, even though they don't have any idea about how to begin to conduct an investigation. Well, Mike, you even get journalists that start criticizing the police for not being fast enough right, <laughs> you know, right. to not conducting a quick investigation, making it very quick because right. I'm a journalist and I need something to write about. Mm. Like it reminds me of Howard Bloom who's writing for uh, mm. what's that airmail magazine, airmail. Yeah. Uh, airmail magazine. And he wants, he, he, all he does is criticize the police and the guy 
couldn't find his butt with both of his hands. But yet he's so critical of the police. You know, Billy, I just want to talk about a question in the chat. And this really is a good question. Uh, Melissa Martin says, did anyone have a life insurance policy on him? Now, that's something that, again, it takes time to look into stuff like that. And perhaps maybe they're waiting for that life insurance uh, policy to be paid out. So uh, I thought that was a great uh, question. And we have people in the chat that are thinking and thinking in terms of uh, who could possibly be involved in this. And uh, Bill, you said it before, it could be somebody close to him, perhaps somebody that works for him. So with all of those things, uh, it's a complicated case. It's a high profile case for Detroit, I'm sure. And, you know, the fact that people are saying, well, you know, bring the FBI in and Slow down. They're going to get to it. I'm sure they're working on it. It's not like this is a cold case. A cold case to me is a case that's not being worked on on a daily basis. That's a cold case. Cold cases down the line, years maybe. Something like this. This is hot. It's being worked on continuously. And I am sure that they are going to come to a conclusion on it, hopefully sooner rather than later. You know, they speak about when the police, they came up to do a a welfare check to see if... uh, how he was because he didn't show up at an event. And I would imagine he's always very punctual. He's probably always, you know, he, when he says he's going to be somewhere, he's there. So it was unusual that he didn't show up. And right away, the police see something that raises their antennas as they walk into this house. So what did they see? Did they see blood spatter uh, from the gunshot wounds? Did they see chairs tipped over? Uh, Did they see signs of a struggle? Did they see the home in disarray, which, as we could see, it's spotless in some of the pictures that we saw. Uh, here's, just, here's just a picture of the outside of the home. But the home is just a spotless home. So whatever they saw raised them up to the point where they started looking further. Did they, they then see maybe marks on the floor indicative of blood and a drag drag marks that led them to that crawl space where my question is, where is the crime scene? Where is their ballistics? If a semi-automatic weapon was used, there should be spent shells unless Phil, they uh, uh, collected the shell casings right, or they had a brass the perpetrator or yeah. perpetrators picked up the spent shells and brought them with them. Because when you noticed, uh, Joseph Scott Morgan and Bobby Chacon, when they're interviewed, they're saying they, they. So it's very possible that Joseph Scott Morgan and Bobby Chacon, two people that are are, are very experienced, Bobby Chacon I have tremendous respect for. Absolutely. uh, That they're saying they because they're making a hypothesis, we'll use that word again, an educated guess that one person couldn't have dragged this body from wherever they, they look, the real police who responded to this, they know where the crime scene is. They know where the murder was committed. They know where the shots were fired. So then they look for the other signs. Well, what else are we seeing here? We're seeing blood. We're seeing, uh, it appears that a, a body was dragged. There's a missing sheet, a comforter, and, and something else from this bed. And that was found with the body. So all of those things, you connect the dots, and you come up with they rather than he or she. 
You know, Billy, I'm glad you brought up the ballistics because a lot of pe people may not realize a shell casing can be indicative to that exact gun. It can be examined and there's striations when the shell ejects that would be only found on that specific firearm. It's almost as uh, same thing as like a fingerprint. So even uh, a bullet that's taken out of a victim's body can be traced back to a gun. Shell casings can also be traced back. So if the firearm is recovered and there is shell casings at the scene and the firearm is recovered in the possession of the perpetrator who they're uh, zeroing in on, that's a little bit more uh, evidence to put that person in the trick bag for the murder. You know, we don't personally know when people are talking about this in the chat, did the doctor own a firearm? Could this have been his own gun that he was oh, shot? So we, we don't know the answers to that. And I would imagine that the police have been very closed-lipped about many things. I'm sure they're closed-lipped about whether the doctor, in fact, owned a gun. Mike? Yeah, Billy, I I would think that if uh, he owned it, that they would mention that. But uh, again, you're, you bring up a good point. They might not because they might not want the public to know and the people that they may interview, you know, how much they know about that firearm. And so uh, they may also be looking into, uh, does anyone in his social circle uh, possess a firearm? Is there, Are they going through the Michigan, you know, state gun registry to see who owns a particular cal caliber firearm that is maybe uh, uh, living in that area and or a friend of the uh, doctor. Very, uh, you know, it's, it's, they got to be circumspect. They have to be very careful. They have to be very tight lipped. And I, I just wish we did know also what the uh, police actually saw when they first uh, looked at that house. They went in, it was April. Uh, they went in a little bit after eight. So there might've still been a little bit of light out because, uh, you know, uh, that time of year, uh, they might have looked in with their flashlights and saw something overturned, you know, and I'd just like to know what they actually saw, because that would give a good indication of where maybe the uh, homicide actually took place. I'm guessing, as we've as you've been talking, that perhaps uh, the, the homicide may have occurred in a ground floor room that was uh, visible from right outside, you know, right outside the wind, one of the windows, because that you look at that house, there's a lot of uh, floor to ceiling kind of uh, windows that are right there leading out onto like porches and things that you could see right in on. Uh, Tim F., people are talking about shell casings. Tim, absolutely right. I forgot to mention if it was a revolver, there would not be shell casings mm -hmm. left on the scene. They stay inside the gun. Thank you for uh, for pointing that right. out. That's a, That's absolutely true. Another thing that Joseph Scott Morgan said, and this was based on the autopsy, the gunshots were in quick succession. And the way he determined that, uh, and one, in fact, had gunshot residue to the back of the head, which is in the first gunshot was fired from a distance of 18 inches away or further. Mm -hmm. The second one was fired Right Close up proximity, close, exactly yeah. with the gun against, which would leave tattooing that left gunshot residue on the back of the head. So that was the shot that he called the coup de gras, which is there was no doubt that whoever did this wanted him dead. Mm -hmm. First of all, if you're going to kill someone, the, the, a shot to the head is is where to, is where to go. It's not anywhere else. It's a shot to the head. But he also said the shots were in quick succession. And the way he determined that was there was hemorrhaging. And again, I did. I don't know this. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, a pathologist. Both gunshot wounds 
showed hemorrhaging. So it showed that they a that he was still alive when those when he was shot, and b that the shots were in quick succession. Phil, I could see you want to say something. Well, what I was going to say was uh, you you pointed that out. The coup de gras, they wanted him dead. So perhaps he uncovered, like you said earlier, some type of a financial thing someone was stealing. Uh, but they wanted him dead, 100%. The first shot and then the second shot is uh, a rapid succession, as you pointed out, based on the fact that there was hemorrhaging in both of those wounds. If the one was shot, uh, one shot was fired and the person went down and then they waited a, a couple of minutes and then went over and fired the second shot, you wouldn't have had that hemorrhaging take place in the second gunshot wound. So uh, it's all very indicative of what you said. They wanted this doctor dead, 100%. You know, one of the things you mentioned before, and someone in the chat, and I'm glad we have such smart people in the chat. How about his will? How about you know? How about money? Uh, money he had, or was anyone stealing from him? Those are some of the checks that the district attorney's office does as the case proceeds. Not every homicide will a district attorney do what's called a financial and check all the financial records of the victim, but in this case. It is absolutely called for. And that takes a while to come back, but that also can connect the dots. And then in this day and age, one of the first things we always say and uh, is his cell phone. The cell phone, everyone's cell phone is a treasure trove of information, of calls, of text messages, of pictures, of information. Could the picture of the, of the perpetrator be in his phone? There's a distinct possibility of that. We are all an open book in this world. And anyone that doesn't have a cell phone, I guess you're not an open book, but I don't know anyone that doesn't have one. Mike. Yeah, Billy, you just think about how much information you put in, you know, your cell phone. It's got everything about your life. What do you scroll? Your social media, what things you're looking up on, you're Googling, uh, pictures you've taken, places you've been. Uh, it's, you know, it's a it's a tracking device, a homing device. Uh, you know, you're a record of who you called, when you called them, how long you talked to them, each and every time you talk to them. It's uh, It really gives a good blow-by-blow, minute-by-minute, you know, uh, idea of what you're doing in your life before you go to work, after you go to work, on your lunch break, and things like that. So hopefully, we're, you know, there is some sort of uh, electronic breadcrumbs that would lead us back to people who he was maybe perhaps expecting that night and opened up the door and people that he had no fear of and that person or persons was actually coming to do him harm. But uh, that is an amazing piece of equipment, and that gives the police tremendous avenues to investigate uh, possible motive by many different people. Schmidty, thank you for being a member for 25 months. I can't, I can't ask a question. Detective Phil is a mind reader. Phil, she says every time <laughs> she's ready to ask a We're question, the you, same answer way. It, you answer it in your dissertation. So, uh, Schmidt, I got to talk to Schmidty. Uh, over the weekend, uh, she was out with duty, Ron, and I actually got to talk to her on the phone. It was a, a pleasure. Uh, she thought I was going to be in New York, but I'm in Florida right now, so I didn't get a chance. I would have loved to have uh, had lunch with you guys. Anyway, Schmitty, thank you so much. You know, one of the things that I also want to know, talking about technology and stuff, didn't, weren't there any video cameras? 
on or around this house. There you go. I mean, it's a 13,000 square foot house. Wouldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't there be security cameras, a ring camera, you know, uh, almost every house. The, uh, I can't say that I have it. So I'm saying that, uh, has a ring camera, you know, and, uh, they're very, um, they're very useful and a home that's 1.2 million. And that's another thing we, we commented about, uh, we couldn't believe that a home this size only costs 1.2 million. And I know 1.2 million is a lot of money, but you put that home in New York or New Jersey or Florida, it's going for about 10 or 12 million, not 1.2. So I was a little bit like taken aback. Like how does a 13,000 square foot home only cost $1.2 million? You know, you would think that, uh, an architect like Rex Human would have a home that looks like that. This doctor really had a beautiful home. He was a beloved guy, very, very generous, had fundraisers in his home. And it's really a shame that uh, that he uh, his life was ended in this manner. Going back to what Mike was saying about the cell phones, you know, it works on the other side too. If the perpetrator had his cell phone on him, now we're zeroing in, we have a person of interest. We're going to look where his cell phone was when we think the murder took place. There perhaps is a, a window that they can narrow down to uh, maybe not an exact time, but a pretty good idea within a couple hours, let's say, of when uh, this murder took place. So now when we call the perpetrator in and we ask him, where were you at this date and time? And that perpetrator says, well, I was over here. No, your cell phone was over at the location where the murder took place. So all of those things are very, very important, time consuming. And I think that that's why the police keeping a tight lip, keeping everything very close to the vest is a very smart move on their part. Yeah, I mean... It, it, it's baffling to me that, um, well, one of the things I, I want, uh, uh, another thought I have, when someone is a person of interest or a suspect, you don't get unlimited shots at that person True. to interview them. You get a couple of times and then that person will say, look, I've had enough. I'm, I have an attorney. I don't want to talk to you anymore. So that is one of the reasons that law enforcement has to be very, very, very careful and very sort of sly because they know at some point if they keep calling this person of interest and that's a, a term the press uses if they keep going to the well with this person this person's going to say this is my card of my attorney uh if you want to talk to me call him you know, Billy, I agree with you about that. But in a case where uh, the perpetrator could be known to the victim, uh, you know, you're going to approach it in a way like, well, you know, we want to get information from you. And if that person lawyers up early on, oh, that's the red flag that we're looking for. That's going to be the person we're going to zero in on. Why all of a sudden did you lawyer up? You're friends with the doctor or you're an acquaintance or you're a business partner or some type of uh, relationship. Maybe it's romantic. Why would you want to have a lawyer present in, during question? We want you to help us to find the murderer. So that's a red flag. Like you said, though, too many times. I mean, if you go at them too many times, they're going to lawyer up 100%. Yeah, and I think in this case, that's what would happen. If you go to the well too many times, whether yeah. the person is friends or whatever, even a family member. Uh, we've had cases here where the, hus the husband, uh, I I'm forgetting the woman's name, um, the husband killed her and he lawyered up immediately, immediately. And they didn't get the goods on him for a couple of months, but there was no doubt that he was the perpetrator. And so it's- Are you talking about the photos Dulos case? The one that was out in uh, Connecticut? No, no, no. I'm talking, okay. uh, th this, this was in another state. Her husband was a pilot and- uh, 
Oh he, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, he he killed her. He Minnesota. Her. Yes, yeah. Madeline Kingsbury. That's it, Madeline yeah. Kingsbury. Right, yeah. Yeah. and the husband was a suspect. Mm-hmm. Minute one, and he was acting as if he was cooperating, but he wasn't. And then when they went to bring him in, he lawyered right up. Yeah. So right, Phil, that is absolutely indicative of of potential guilt, especially this was his wife. And you're not going to cooperate in helping us find your wife. You're the perp. <laughs> you, know? you know, that's the first place you're going to look. And you're going to go with the approach. Listen, we have to talk to you. We're going to ask you some hard questions. Your wife was killed. We want to eliminate you as a suspect. Please cooperate. That's the tack that I would take in a situation like that. Now, when that person starts to give you some bullshit answers in plain English, or they start to lie to you, that's when you're really going to come down hard on them. And that's when the person's going to say, you know what? You're zeroing on me as a, a suspect. I want to speak to a lawyer. Yeah, 100%. I want to go back to um, Court TV again. We're here with Joseph Scott Morgan. No, there was somebody else in the house with him that night having some kind of social event. And so so I think that they're looking at all that, and then you start narrowing it down. There's four categories of people, right? Family, friends, co-workers, and then the catch-all is that fourth was a a handyman, other people that do business around your house. So the person's going to fall into one of those four categories – and, and, and here it looks like a social acquaintance. Um, they've pretty much said that. And so now you can narrow it down. Look at his phone records. Look at his emails, his texts and all that. And, you know, because it's impossible to carry on a relationship without that kind of communication these days. Now, uh, Joseph Scott Morgan, I want to put this up on the screen from the Detroit Free Press. The night before loved ones were to celebrate the life of slain Detroit neurosurgeon Devon Hoover, his home was broken into. Detroit police said an unknown suspect broke into Hoover's home in the Boston Edison district overnight sometime between Saturday and Sunday. No one was home during the break-in, and it's unknown at this time whether items from the house were stolen, according to police. Police did not say whether the break-in was connected to the killing due to the active investigation. What, what do you think of this post-murder break-in? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things can be uh opined about you know relative to this uh was it something in order to go and clean up afterwards or to pick up evidence or to collect something perhaps uh i have no idea uh i think that that's something that they would look did we lose billy Uh, mike you still there Uh, i'm here yeah okay i think we may have lost bill Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking. I removed myself from the screen. I was just saying that this looks like a museum-style house. Beautiful. If anything was out of place, you could see the doctor was probably meticulous, which Mm -hmm. also means he's got a staff of workers in this house. There's no way Mm -hmm. you could own and upkeep a 13,000-square-foot house and be a neurosurgeon and do the work yourself. There's no way on earth. And, and, you know, Billy, with uh, with that said, uh, that would also lead me to believe that uh, the family requested a well check because he didn't show up at uh, some function. But also, if there were workers coming there or people checking in, that would also lead to him being found to be missing or or not at the location. You know, he's up in the attic. And, uh, again, they might have uh, stumbled upon the crime scene. But it looks like the first thing that happened was he didn't show up and concerned uh, members uh, of his uh, family or friends were the ones that uh, requested the well check. I would really love to know, and we said it earlier, what was it that the police saw when they peered through the window and uh, that made them, you know, uh, investigate further? There had to be something. 
Absolutely. Uh, very closely at, and also it's very bold, isn't it? Uh, when you begin to think about this, this is not something that you would normally see in a crime scene uh, where you might have an individual that had come back for something perhaps. Uh, one other thing I, I think I'd like to point out here is uh, back to these coverings. Um, I'd be very interested to know if there's any kind of dynamic deposition of blood, particularly on that carpet, that the carpet was used perhaps to wrap the body in because it's where, you know, he may have been killed upon that surface in order to obscure that. Were they trying to hide evidence vis-a-vis -vis that? We know that he sustained gunshot wounds. Was there an attempt to pick up spent brass at the scene, which are the uh, expelled uh, shells, empty shells, that would have been ejected at the scene if it was a semi-auto that was used. I, I think that all of the stuff is being considered by Detroit PD at this time. All right, our investigators are staying with us. We've got more to talk about because when we come back after his death. Still with us, Bobby Chacon, Justice Scott Morgan, and Erica Morris. Uh, Justice Scott Morgan, I'll begin with you on what we do know from this autopsy report. Um, what does it tell you? What is significant here? Well, they're talking about that the first gunshot wound uh, that Dr. Hoover sustained was at a distance. It's indeterminate. So that means that there's no uh, soot deposition, no powder deposition. I've got a, a mock-up of a skull that we use here at Jacksonville State just to kind of give you an idea of where this tracks from. So when you're thinking about the first gunshot wound uh, that was sustained, it goes... The wound track is actually from the back of the skull uh, to the front, and it is actually entering right here in the parietal area and forward to the temporal area. Now, this is at an indeterminate level. Uh, you can't, or range, that is that the end of the muzzle, there's a high probability that the end of the muzzle was at least 18 inches away when this was fired. So if you just think about talcum powder kind of floating through the air, you're not gonna get the deposition. However, that changes when you move back here to the occipital area, the left occipital area of, of, the, of the skull. This is this bony prominence on the back of your head. This, however, was apparently a contact gunshot wound. So you have this first shot that begins on the right parietal area. This is this big bone right behind your ear and goes forward to the right temporal area. And it's probably at a distance, the next one, or with them hovering over him. And then the next one's up close. It's kind of the coup de gras, if you will. And and here's, here's something interesting, uh, Vinny, that I discovered while reading this report. It's the idea that in both of these wound tracks, they're hemorrhage in both of these wound tracks. What that tells me is that these were sequentially quick, boom, boom, like this, so that you're still gonna have the opportunity for hemorrhage to form in the second track, as opposed to this being a post-mortem event where they go back and say, you know, well, maybe after a few minutes, I wanna make sure that he's deceased. This happened very quickly because you've got hemorrhage in both of the wound tracks. I think, yeah, you know something, this, um Joseph Scott Morgan is great. I mean, yeah, uh, he really is. He's very great. few people uh, that are talking heads. He happens, well, he's, he's also a professor, uh, but he explains it pretty damn well. And I think what he was talking about is so important because 
given that it says something about the shooter that he does a boom, boom, you know, that he shoots two successive rounds, one to the side of the head, one to the back of the head. There is no uh, doubt that this person wanted the doctor dead. Hey, Bill, can I ask you and Phil a quick sure. question? Sure. From what the doctor said about the uh, the shots, do you think the first shot was at the doctor when the doctor was probably already maybe perhaps beaten or thrown on the ground and then the shot coming from over at least 18 inches from his head from like somebody just leaning over and shooting and then the second shot was somebody kind of like kneeling right next to him and doing the coup de gras do you think he might have been in that position where the first shooter the the, the first shot was just uh someone leaning over his prone body you know, Mike, th that's a great question. However, without us knowing the rest of the condition of the body, yeah. very difficult for us to answer that. Because did he have any other trauma? Did he have any? Right. Other, did he have any defense wounds? Right. Uh, yeah. What was the position of? You know, here's another thing: was there lividity on the body? Because how do we know after he was shot that he wasn't left in the per place he was shot? He said he was prone. That means lying face down. Right. If you're there for a certain amount of time, the blood pools to the dependent area of your body, and that's called lividity. Was there any lividity? What, what was the? We don't know the answers to those questions. For, so for us to answer that, we'd have to know. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd have to be at that crime scene, basically. What I think, Mike, is that the first shot was probably like they said. The first shot was the one that hit him behind the ear. It was from a distance. Uh, it could have been uh, two feet, could have been 10 feet, could have been 20 feet, but that puts him down. And then the other one is up close to Coupe de Gras, just the way the doctor described it. Bill, you made a great point. We don't know the positioning of his body. Was he laying down? Was he upright, running away? Uh, was there a struggle? All of those things uh, really would be uh, answered from the autopsy if you spoke to the medical examiner. Lividity, a very, very good thing that you brought up, Billy. Uh, if his body was moved quickly, the lividity would take place in the attic. Uh, so that would tell you that he wasn't dead in one position for a long time. I think lividity is about an hour or so before it really, uh, and it looks like black and bluing. The skin gets purple on the side. Yeah. Uh, that's prone, you know, gravity just pulls down the blood pulls through the skin and, and it looks like bruising. So again, if that is up in the attic, uh, the position that he's found in, I believe it was face down. So the lividity would be on the front of the body. Uh, perhaps as Billy said, maybe he wasn't moved right away and there is lividity where he was, uh, where he was shot. So those are all things that uh, medical examiner would be able to determine and give answers to the investigating detectives. Thank you. You know, this is, this is all, you know, homicide uh, 101, 102 and 103, because uh, really one of the best ways to get the feel of a homicide is to visit the crime scene. Be there. And if you're not on the crime scene, a lot of these questions, Mike, and I'm glad you asked these questions, but we'd be, uh, telling you false statements if we could pretend to know the answers when we weren't at the crime scene. Phil. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you go to the crime scene, you're going to read it. And I got to say, uh, Bobby Chacon, I wish he was a detective on M NYPD. He has really great instincts. The things that he said about this case without visiting the crime scene and without being intimately involved by seeing the, the actual case folder, he has some really good instincts. I'm certain he would have been a first grader on our job, Billy. But uh, when you go there, you're going to look at uh, a lot of different things. You're going to try and find a location where you believe uh, that the murder took place 
as Bobby said. And if there's a blood trail or if there's drag marks, perhaps it was cleaned up. I don't know. But there might be indicators of where it took place and then up into the attic area. So, uh, you know, you're going to get a feel for things. And what was the condition of the room or where it took place, wherever it was that it took place? Was there a broken bottle or a glass to in indicators of a fight or struggle? Was there any defense wounds uh, on his, on the victim's hands? They did take fingernail clippings. Right. So perhaps there was some type of a struggle. Uh, again, we'd be looking for uh, underneath the fingernails, uh, DNA, uh, pieces of skin, stuff like that, that would tie to the perpetrator. So, Bill, you made a great, great point. Without being present in that crime scene, and we've been to so many of them, you get a feel for it, you look around, and you kind of figure things out, and you you talk about it with your other investigators, and you come to a conclusion that this is what you believe happened. And most of the time, it's pretty direct, and it's pretty exact. Absolutely. Phil, you want to take... Sure. Right on the screen, Joe Murray, attorney at law. Now, listen, guys, if you find yourself in need of a criminal defense attorney in the New York City and surrounding area, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only a terrific criminal defense attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD, and he literally knows both sides of defense. So if you need to get a hold of Joe... His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. We could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. It's right up there on the screen. Joe Murray is a terrific criminal defense attorney and a terrific supporter of police off the cuff real crime stories. Excellent. I want to play a little of this of uh, Brian Enton, who has two friends of Dr. Hoover on his show. Thing new. I mean, do you believe that this was someone who may have known Dr. Hoover? We really can't speculate as to what could have possibly happened. Um, we're really here just to talk about the reward fund for whoever might have a clue um, who can come forward and hopefully help bring something, some information to the police that will help solve this crime. And that's all we can say. Yeah, I totally understand. And obviously, we there is a GoFundMe set up. There's now a $20,000 reward, which is really, really important as police try to get information. Tell us a little bit about uh, Dr. Hoover, uh, Kim. I mean, it sounds like he was a, a wonderful man. Uh, I've been reading about him for the last couple of weeks. You know, I would have people over to the house. His house is beautiful, by the way. Um, tell us about him. Devon was one of the biggest advocates of the city of Detroit and just doing good things and investing in the city. So we met him in 2005 and he encouraged us to buy this crazy nine bedroom vacant house that was a hundred years old. He said, only you can renovate that house. Only you can do it. And he was like that with everyone. He just, he, he, he was a coach. He was a mentor and he was someone who was passionate about everything he did. And, and you know, with that, you know, he just he 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 had he had many social circles, many different networks in the city, many different friendship circles, and just someone that everyone knew, leaned on, relied on. We thought he would be here, you know, forever. Yeah, his house was just beautiful. You mentioned him him encouraging you to also buy a big house and restore oh, yeah. it. It's just it's it's sad to think that he um, was murdered in a place that he obviously loved so much and and you know had had spent so much time. Uh, renovating. Um, do, do you all live right close to there? We live. We we live. We live about a mile and a half away. So we're more in the downtown area. We actually downsized. Um, decided to go from super old to super modern. Um, and to which Devon supported that too. It was very funny. We're like, well, we're 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 
we're, we're going to get a little more cleaner, modern, clean lines and white walls. And he came and he goes, this is beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah. Because again, it was, you know, it, it was, it was historic, still Detroit, though modern. And, and he just, he just, he loved his friends. He loved the city. Are you surprised um, that this has still not been solved? I mean, again, you know, there, there was someone in custody. I remember hearing about this right when it happened, thinking, gosh, I'm sure they're going to they're going to solve this quickly. I know, obviously, the reward comes into play now. I mean, did, did you think by now that, that, that you would know who was behind this? We really did. I, I mean, it is. It's. I can't believe it's only. It's been two months, and we still don't have answers. Um, now it's been seven months. So yeah. this is uh, obviously that they thought this was going to be solved rather quickly, and uh, it just didn't happen. Um, I think, and we want to believe that the police are still actively investigating and tracking down every possible clue to figure out what possibly happened. Um, and so hopefully they're just around the corner from an answer and um, they just want to make sure that they have their case exactly right before they announce anything. And yeah. waiting for that right tip. And that's why the raising the reward for the, from the GoFundMe is so important is to have anyone come forward with that right tip that could lead to that key missing piece of evidence that can bring charges. Because I, 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 I'm confident that the police know who did this and why. They just need an airtight case. So as we, uh, as we were saying earlier on, uh, we believe, and I think most people in, uh, in the know believe, the police know who did this. I, we just don't think they have the evidence to make the arrest yet, or well, they may have the evidence to make the arrest, but they may not have the evidence to go forth to a prosecution and convict this person or persons after a trial. Mike, yeah, Bill, this is where the where patience and understanding and uh, you know re just realizing that the this is there's so much work to be done on a case like this. This isn't something you'd see in a 60 minute law and order show where, you know, you have two detectives and they're working with the DA and it just gets solved. No, there's so much work that people don't even know about that. There's that would never even be shown on TV, just patience and uh, trust that the police look, they're homicide detectives like you guys, this is your bread and butter. This is what you did for years and years and years. You know how to do this business. And so I just want the people to just understand that. Absolutely. This is a report from a news station like a month ago. Billy, can I make a quick comment about something? Go ahead. Now, uh, the, the uh, report that you just played with Brian Enton, that young lady said something that I thought was pretty telling. He asked her, uh, do you think this could have been someone close to him, a friend? And she deflected. She deflected from that, perhaps on the advice of the police. She said, oh, we're here to talk about the victim. We're not here to talk about how he died or something like that. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, no, no doubt. I think they're, well, people have been coached what to say and what not to say. Absolutely. Case of Detroit neurosurgeon, Dr. Devon Hoover. It's been seven months since he was found dead in a crawl space in his Boston Edison home during a welfare check. Well, now Police Chief James White is hinting at a big new development. Megan Woods joins us live. And Megan, at one point, there was a person of interest. Well, Kimberly, that was back in May, and that person of interest was released, and now we're seeing the seasons have changed. Hoover's home is up for sale, but 
seven months later, the police chief last night at the meeting made it very clear that they have not forgotten who this neurosurgeon is and the search for his killer. I get a weekly update on the case and I can tell the board that it is moving forward. November marks seven months since Dr. Devon Hoover was found shot to death in a crawl space in his Boston Edison home. His killer has yet to be found. Thursday, during a Board of Police Commissioners meeting, Commissioner Ricardo Moore asked... Chief, Dr. Hoover, Boston Edison, a neurosurgeon, any updates on that homicide? Chief White was not only hopeful, he hinted on big developments on the case, noting that he expects a big announcement soon. We had a significant to-do list uh, when we submitted uh, our findings. Uh, we are working through that to-do list and then we're just about complete. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it's gonna be very soon. What that announcement entails isn't clear. What is, is the heartache friends and family are going through. This was one of Devon's six sisters just two months after his murder. You brought unimaginable pain to our family when you chose the evil in your own heart over the life of Devon. We have an active team of investigators that are, are, are very active with the prosecutor's office. We are confident uh, that uh, we should be able to bring some closure to this family. Now, during that meeting yesterday, Chief White also mentioned that he's hopeful that that big announcement would come before the end of the year, but no further comments today. Reporting live. So, Again, as we said earlier on, you, you can't ever make promises uh, no. to the press. You can't make promises to the community because they hold your feet to the fire, Bill. Yeah, and when it doesn't happen, you what do you say? You, you just can't, uh, you know, you can't make any excuses. So just to recap, April twenty second, twenty excuse me, April twenty third, twenty twenty three, Dr. Devon Hoover was shot to death inside his home and brought up into the attic where his body was discovered. It's been almost seven months later. Uh, most experts that have looked at this case believe that it's a known-to person, that the, the person was not a stranger. Uh, so far, there has been no arrest. We're going to follow this case. This doctor seems like he was one hell of a human being. Everyone seems to have loved the guy. He uh, Not just professionally, he was probably a top surgeon, but Personally, he seemed like a great person. Uh, Phil, your final thoughts. My final thoughts, you kind of summed up uh, the way I feel about this case. All victims of homicide, it's terrible when anyone is killed. This particular victim, he was described as a very charitable guy. He was a terrific, terrific neurosurgeon. Uh, I read some comments of people that he operated on. He was described as having hands of gold and unbelievable hand-eye coordination. Obviously, when you're a neurosurgeon, that's what you really need. God forbid you make one little slip, you can paralyze someone. But there were many people coming out and saying nice things about him. He relieved their pain, whether it be neck pain, back pain. And I just hope and pray that the uh, the family does get the uh, justice that they deserve and justice uh, for the victim in this case, Dr. Devon Hoover. God bless his soul. May he rest in peace and God bless his family. Absolutely. Mike, your final thoughts. Mike, just uh, let the people know that the police are working as hard as they can and uh, just keep the patience and just believe in uh, that the justice will prevail sooner or later in this case. Absolutely. Folks, I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. We'll stay, we'll bring updates on this case as they occur. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. Whoa.
soul.